In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Hey, what couples have the most satisfying marriages? You've heard the phrase, opposites attract. But is that really true in the long run? Find out today on this week's episode of the Men Arena Podcast. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army. I salute you. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your guide and host of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men, helping you thrive inside the stress bubble of life and beyond. Men, let's dive into our hero stories. So we are tracking to have 365 hero stories in 365 days. So help us be a part of that campaign. Let us know how God has used this ministry to transform your life. This one came from a guy on Instagram named Brandon, and Brandon says this. This is powerful stuff, guys. This is number 32 of 365 hero stories in 365 days. This comes from Brandon on Instagram, who says, thanks for the awesome Christian men's content that is making a difference in my life as I try to implement everything I'm learning. My parenting has improved the most. Being patient with my kids and being present in that six to 10 window period that you talk about is making a massive difference. Thank you for what you guys do. It helps in countless numbers of ways. You have a listener for life. Brandon, hit us up at menarena.org with your physical address so we can send you some swag just to thank you for being one of our heroes in the arena. Hey guys, thanks again for making Men Arena podcast, Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. We're so excited today to have my friend Jason Karampatsos on the show today. Jason's an author and a pastor all the way up in Albany, New York. I guess it's all the way up there unless you live in Rochester, then it's down there or something. But married to his beautiful wife, Jennifer, for almost 28 years. Jason writes extensively on the impact of perspectives and perceptions in marriage. He's the author of today's uh, book, which is one of my favorite books on marriage called The Elephant in the Marriage. He speaks at men's conferences, marriage retreats, and workshops on how to have a thriving marriage. Jason, it's great to have you on the show again, man. Jim, it is so great to be with you again here, uh, I guess, in person, live uh, yeah. over the internet. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. When I ran into you at that men's conference and and you were selling your books and I was selling mine, and I started asking you about your book, I was so intrigued by the book. 
And then having you on the conference, the, 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 the podcast, I, I think you've discovered something through your research and, and couples just need to know about this stuff. Yeah, really, as you kind of unpack some of this uh, original dissertation research when I was going through my doctor program, wanted something that would be practical and accessible for the pastor in the church, not just something that would be uh, research studied, put on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. But as a pastor, I wanted something that I could use and that's something that pastors could use. And so kind of wrestling through and, and came up with um, kind of a novel, unique approach of looking at marriages. And out of that, we unpack some some really interesting things that just directly relate right for the local pastor, for the local counselor, the local man to be able to apply to their marriage and their relationships. Yeah. And these principles are so, so impactful. I was just talking to a couple about your book, like not even a week ago. And that's when I realized I should have him back on because this is good stuff. Well, why don't we take a couple minutes today, Jason, and tell us a little bit more about uh, your story, uh, things you enjoy doing, things that might be pertinent to our interview today. Yeah. So as you've already mentioned, my wife and I, we're going on 28 years of marriage. We met in children's church. So <laughs> we we grew up together. And so on one hand, we got married young, 18 and 19 years old. But on the other hand, we had known each other for over a decade. So we either took our time or we got married quick. Again, it all depends on your perspective, your, your yeah. perception, whether we got married uh, too young, too quick, or if we waited too long, or if it was just just right. Uh, and so over the years, we had an opportunity, you know, as uh, as an 18 and 19 year old, we're sitting in uh, marriage classes with those who've been married for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And we learned a tremendous amount of information watching them. We're like, all right, we don't want to end up like that someday, uh, but we do want to end up like that. Uh, and so we really just kind of dove into reading books and researches. And there's so much great information out there. Um, but as a, as a pastor, as a licensed counselor, as I'm sitting with couples, I kept finding like there was just a, a blind spot. There was a, a block of information that I didn't have a resource that I could hand. And so I kind of joke sometimes I got really lazy. I got tired of repeating the same information yeah. session after session. So I wrote a book uh, so I wouldn't have to keep repeating it. Uh, and it's just so, again, very easily accessible uh, and some practical things that when we understand them, they, they can really directly relate right to the relationship. This is it right here, guys, the elephant in the marriage. But you, you, you said something that got me curious. I see a lot of couples right now. So I've been married 30 years. And Congratulations. so I thank you. It's been, it's been uh, marital bliss, no problems. We are the perfect couple. <laughs> I just lied to you. I have to repent. But, but one of the things I noticed is that, and you said this earlier, you said married couples married 25 to 30 years. We're seeing a lot of our friends, they're uh, getting divorced. Oh yeah. And there seems to be a theme, but when you see couples who have, who've pushed through uh, parenting pushed through those teen years, you know, the kids finally leave the house and these, you would think that on that other end would be the sweet spot of marriage, but instead we're seeing these marriages disintegrate. What's going on there? Yeah. A few different things. And like, this really hits home because my parents were married for 28 years Yeah, uh, before my mom up and left my dad. And it's like, all right, so what had happened? And part of it really kind of is really that the theme of this book, our perspective and our perceptions. Mm -hmm. um, and getting real personal, like in my family, my mom was living for her four boys. Ah. Uh, and so as we left the home, she became unhappy. My dad was living for his wife. I mean, he would often say, like, I chose her first. She comes first. And so he was looking forward to the moment where he would finally have his bride one on one. But for my mom, the four boys were gone and she found herself quickly unhappy. 
and I shouldn't say quickly unhappy, you know, it's kind of building over time. Yeah. But they were just living in different realities, different perceptions of what was going on within the home. And so kind of unpacking that, what's often happening for couples, and not everyone, but often, uh, you know, as they get to that point, they've got different things they're looking forward to. You know, I, I know of individuals who have straight out said, hey, uh, I'm staying with my spouse until the kids are out of the house and then I'm filing for divorce. Yep. It, it's a, it's like it's just a it's a decision. And some of that unpacks and there's a whole chapter on this in the book, whether we view a marriage as a contract or a covenant. Yep. And if it's a contract, it's just like, you know, you get into your cell phone contract or car payment contract, whatever the case might be. You make your payment. You get to have the services. You stop you making your payment. No harm, no foul. They just stop the services. You stop. You break your contract with T-Mobile or with Verizon. All right. No one's losing sleep over it. You just no longer have cell phone coverage. Mm. And if we view our marriage simply merely as a contract, then, hey, once we want out, like there's a clause. This is how we get out of it. But if we view our marriage from the get-go as a covenant, this is a covenant before the Lord, that there is no escape clause, then it changes things. My wife and I, back when we were teenagers, we made the decision to remove from our vocabulary the divorce word. Like it just, it's just not an option. <clears throat> and I don't know if I should say this being, since it's being recorded, but we literally gave each other permission. Like divorce is not an option. Correct. But if either of us cheat, you can kill me. Like, yeah, murder's like, on the table. Murder's on the table, right? <laughs> yeah. Murder's on the table. Um, you know, we often joke in, in, in some denominations, like divorce, you know, you, you lose your credentials. You can commit murder. You're still uh, again, good, man. Hey, this is not legal advice for anyone. But like we took it that seriously that just that was not an option. And no matter what we've walked through, that remains not an option. And that comes back to that is our point of view. Uh, that's the perspective we're coming from. So our perception of marriage is, hey, no matter how tough this might get, we're going to fight. We're going to work. We're going to figure out a way not just to survive but to thrive. Because once we get to that point where, hey, it's just a contract, we, you know, start weighing the pros and cons. You know, you got a car, it gets really old. At what point do we stop investing into it? At what point do we give up on uh, fixing that, that appliance or whatnot? No. In our marriage, it has to be, has to be that covenant before God till death do us part. Well, you know, what's interesting, Jason, is the one thing you didn't mention about a contract with Verizon a contract protects me from the other person. It's like a firewall, right? Yeah. It's a, you have this opt out that there's a protection there. But when and when we view our marriage as a contract, we're trying to protect ourselves and give ourselves a, a, a way out if things uh, if we don't feel safe or if we don't feel if if things go south. But a covenant is is very very frightening because there is no way out of a covenant. Yeah. That is uh, no that yeah. There's no way out. And it's not simply what's in it for me. Again, as yes. you just mentioned, that cell yes. phone contract, once your your bill gets too high or um, the cell coverage drops, you get to a point where it's all right. Um, I've got this as an option and I'm going to exit out for those who are walking through their relationship. Like even right now, there might be some that are listening and like, hey, my marriage isn't making me happy. This isn't what I want. Like I want these other things. It's like, well, no, that's that's not how it works. And as long as you are trying to do that, the honest truth is you're not going to be satisfied. The grass isn't greener on the other side. And if it's greener, well, it's because it's getting fertilized with something. 
But as we invest in our relationship, invest in a marriage, we fight for our marriage. Then we begin to create an opportunity where the Holy Spirit can work in some profound ways. Yeah, I remember after. So I actually I've shared this story numerous times. I hated my wife the first two years we were married in ministry. I prayed that she would die. So murder wasn't the option. It was just a crash, you know, some kind of death. And and I re, I had an epiphany one day. I realized I'm in a covenantal marriage here. I'm not. There's no way out. So I can either live a crappy life, yeah, or I can fix this thing. And I think not having an option was what made my marriage better. My wife and I joke that people say, "What do you need for successful marriage?" We say Jesus and being stubborn. Not yeah. in that order. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I love what you're saying there about these things. I think uh, this is the. I think this is probably the missing ingredient. In couples that last a lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, there's right from the get go, it's that it's that firm foundation. It's where we're starting from. If we're starting from, hey, as long as this is making me happy, then okay, it doesn't work that way with our kids. Right. You can't just one day decide, you know what, this yeah. isn't working for me. They're eight years old and, and, it, and it's too tough. All right. I'm, I'm going to exit. Um, no, like you're their parent and, and you're you're committed to that. And I think that is easier for people to understand. But when we go into marriage, believing that there's a way out, because that's what we see in the movies. I mean, you think about how many movies the romantic plot is for one person to end up with someone else. Yeah. I mean, that's toxic poison. Yep. Because time and time again, the romantic outcome, like what we're cheering for. It's like watching Ocean's Eleven, like we're cheering for the thieves to to win at the end. And when we bring that into our marriages, it's it's toxic. And so being able to fight against culture, society, the, the norms, and begin to say, no, that's, that's not what the Word of God teaches. That's not what the Word of God uh, stands for. And that's not what's ultimately going to bring that joy and that satisfaction, that unconditional love. You know, Scripture says for husbands— to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Like that's that's the paradigm. That's the description of what makes for a healthy marriage. Now, unpacking that is it, you know, will take a lifetime. Right. So how do we give ourselves, sacrifice, put our spouse first, loving them unconditionally, not just when we want to, not just when they make us happy, not when they let us do what we want, but loving them because we're called to love them. Well, I love the Gary Thomas quote uh, that <clears throat> says, uh, marriage is not about making you happy. It's about making you holy. Yeah. And, and really, I, uh, I heard a devotional from actually the guy that led me to the Lord. And he said, you know, it's about Jesus period, not Jesus plus. And so, mm-hmm. so what happens here is, is we need to realize marriage, if it is forever, if it is a covenant, then we can't think happy. We've got to think it's all about Jesus, right? How do we get closer yeah. to Jesus? How do how does my marriage, that great illustration of marriage, Christ in the church, and, and me and my wife, how do those two things act together? And how do they make me a man who's closer to Jesus? And then through that holiness and being closer to Jesus, I'm actually going to grow closer to my wife. So I think sometimes we've got to, you know, flip backwards. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that uh, my uh, doctoral dissertation research uncovered, and it wasn't unique, it kind of confirmed something that others had found, is really that that relationship between our satisfaction in our marriage and our relationship with God, 
that you know we kind of think as like a, an isosceles triangle. Yes. And I think we talked about this the first time I was yeah. on. Yeah. That the, the the closer we get to God, it creates an opportunity. There's a correlation with the closeness we can get with our spouse, which really creates a great kind of dual platform or, or two way approach in our marriage. If we find ourselves like if there's a man listening right now, like I'm trying with my wife and it's just not working. There's just this block. Thankfully, if we focus on drawing closer to God, miraculously, it creates an opportunity for us to draw closer to our spouse. So whether it changes them or it changes us, I believe it changes us more so. But as we draw closer to God and likewise for those men that are struggling in their faith, that they're just like they're just on a dry season, focus on loving your wife mm-hmm. as Christ loved the church uh, then it's going to transform you. It's going to change you. And so I love that when I'm working with a couple, we've got those extra tools where we can thrive in our relationship with both God and our spouse. Yeah. It's not either or, but there is that direct connection between the two. Yeah, that's so good. So so questions. So as we dive into your book, tell me about the title. I understand the idiom elephant in the room. Yeah. What's the elephant in the marriage? Yeah. And so I know this is something that guys sometimes come up to me at a, at a men's conference. Like, are you calling my wife fat? Like, clearly, no, <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely not what we're talking about. But it's that thing in the room that we just don't want to talk about. Like, we know it's there. Uh, we're not communicating. We're on different pages. Like, uh, we might be on the same planet. You know, they talk about men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like, no, yeah. we're from the same planet. Um, we just need to get on the same page. Uh, and there's often that reality where we're we're just walking through things differently. We've got different perceptions and our perceptions create those subjective realities that we live in and we respond to. Very practical. You're sitting in a room. If you feel it's hot, you're going to turn up the air conditioning. If your wife feels, or your spouse feels that it's too cold, well, they're going to turn up the air or they're going to turn up the heat. Yes. And like. The reality is the room is the temperature that it's in, but you're both responding to it differently. And so often we just don't address that. Like we don't know the the verbiage and it's what I like about the book. It gives some terminology and some ways to be able to address like, all right, this is what's going on. We're just seeing things differently, um, kind of like a, a parallel. And I think this is really powerful kind of on a, on a national level when we're talking about Roe versus Wade, we're talking about the, the, abor- the abortion debate. You know, there are those who are debating uh, well, it's my choice. And then those who are debating, it's a, it's a life. Like, well, those are two different arguments. Like, those are two different conversations. Yeah. And we keep coming at those. And so that's, a, that's, again, a pretty dramatic one. But on a small scale, whether it's the thermostat, the finances, do we need a new car? Uh, who should do household chores? If we're coming at them, having different conversations, but we think we're discussing the same thing because we're both talking about uh, the gas tank or finances uh, that we're just, we're just, again, it's that elephant in the room. It's that thing that we're not talking about that really needs to be addressed. And when we call it for what it is, and when we uh, really just focus in on what is there in the room, in the marriage, in the relationship, then it creates an opportunity for us to get on the same page and to actually be talking about productively the, the same thing and move the relationship forward. Yeah, that's this is some real powerful stuff in regards to re- marriages. So let's let's do this. So let's you're talking about perception and perspective. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about perspective in the, in the context of a marriage. How would you define perspective? 
Yeah, so perspective we refer to as that is that more uh, objective. It's your literal point of view. It's what you're seeing from where you're at. Like again, r- right now I'm sitting here in Maryland, uh, in New York, and, and I'm looking forward and I'm seeing what I'm seeing. Uh, you're seeing what's behind me and I'm only seeing it uh, through my camera, but I'm not seeing it through my eye. In our marriage, we're seeing things from our point of view. Um, I worked all day, I'm really busy. Therefore, when I get home, I shouldn't have to do the dishes. Uh, I'm seeing it from my point of view. For our spouse, their perspective, they're seeing all the things that they needed to do throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're starting by looking at things, and and quite simply, we're looking at things more selfishly. We're looking at things from our point of view. We're seeing what we're seeing. And that's kind of that that more um, literal or or objective portion of- Objective. Yeah. So so if if my perspective- I see a white wall. I see a picture with two people in it behind you. I see a white microphone. Yeah. You know, I see a, a road, uh, a buffer there. So if that's my perspective, then is my perception, the subjective interpretation of what I'm seeing? Exactly. So okay. you're seeing a picture behind me of two people, uh, subjectively, you're seeing it objectively, but then you are making assumptions based upon what's there. Yeah. Oh, that's you. And who's another person? Where are you? Oh, you know, we look at the shapes, we look at the textures, we look at the perspective, the, the angles, and then we make uh, assumptions based upon, like you just said, all right, I see a, a road filter right there. Uh, you saw that. And that is your assumption. You happen to be accurate. But so often in our lives, we see something and, and that's not really what is there, mm-hmm. but it's real to us. And okay. so we're responding in the book, I kind of this this fictional conversation between Amber and Brandon. They're in the car on their way to church, and, and as they're driving, they uh, there's a, a a moment where the where Amber, the wife, gets really quiet, and the husband's thinking, "All right, um, oh, she's really into this worship song," and so he's giving her that space, but instead, she's wanting to engage in a conversation. She's over there from her point of view. He's being quiet, which is true. Like they will both agree, Brandon's being quiet. His perception was oh, she wanted some space to worship with the song. She's thinking he's avoiding the conversation about finances. He's avoiding making plans for our, our anniversary. Mm-hmm. And so then it just kind of snowballs from there. And so often in our marriage, in our relationship, again, this is with coworkers, with our children, whatever the case might be, we see something and then we make assumptions based upon that. Like this happens to be a picture of, of me and my daughter. We were just in London uh, back in December and we went to the O2 and it's a picture of us climbing over the O2. Um, but it's a picture of me with another woman. Like, yeah, yeah. And so you see that and you're like, all right. And so then your mind starts to go places. Um, our spouse picks up our phone and they see something. You know, there's there's a text from... Uh, maybe like a, a, a gender neutral name, you know, Pat or whatever the case might be. Uh, and they start assuming based upon that. Actually, I had a meeting this afternoon with someone and, and had one of those names. I thought I was meeting with a guy and I get to the room and I'm meeting with a, with a female. Uh, I, I saw the name and, and I made an assumption. My perception was who I was going to be meeting with. And so when that starts to snowball and we start responding to that, like I... Thankfully, I didn't say this, but I could have said, oh, hey, you know, where's the director? Am I going to be meeting with him? And then, Ooh. you know, yeah, that would have been offensive. Yeah. Um, thankfully, I went a little bit quicker in the moment and and didn't say something stupid like that. But in our marriages, 
Oh, yeah. We often say stupid things like that. We hear something. Again, it's it's we can quote back word for word what was heard. Perspective. But then our perception is our interpretation of what we think we heard or what we think they meant by that. And that perception, if it is wrong, it can lead us down a trail a false narrative and false narrative. And then you can go down a deep rabbit hole. So absolutely. Well, so let's talk about the Funhouse mirror. <clears throat> so yeah. this is on page 26, your book, and you have a powerful quote. And so I'm going to, I'm going to read the quote and ask you about this fun house mirror perspective and how it relates to perspective perception. So you said this quote, if there's ever going to be any change, it needs to begin with you. And that change is going to have to be a chance of occurring, if that change is going to have any chance of occurring, you need to be open to accepting that all you thought you have known may not be all that you thought it was. Everything that you've held on to as dogmatic may end up not being the complete picture. So talk to us about this funhouse mirror and perspective perception. It's funny that you pick up on that because just the other day at our church in our, our recording room, um, they're kind of making some edits to it. And so they want to show me. So I went over one of our staff pastors and they've got a mirror right in front. And again, that's a great idea. But looking in that mirror, I had really short legs and a really <laughs> large torso. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, that's weird. And and the staff pastor, he didn't know what I was talking about. I'm like, well, stand right here. Again, because where he was standing, he didn't know what I was talking about. He said, where I was seeing my perspective, he oh. was able to see what I was seeing. But again, when you're looking at that, like, if you believe that that's a real mirror, like, I mean, it was a real mirror, but it was not an accurate reflection. Um, our wives are a little bit more attuned to this. Which mirrors in the home they prefer? I yes. guess certain, yeah, certain mirrors make them look better because the way it reflects. Yes. Um, and so, as we're walking through life, there are things that we we just know to be true based upon what we're seeing, but it might just be. A funhouse mirror, like you know, uh, you know. Sometimes we'll kind of, uh, kind of, kind of talk around, like, "Oh yeah, hey, the staff thinks I'm real funny." Like, well, you're the lead pastor, you're their boss. They're laughing at you not because you're funny. They might be <laughs> laughing at you because, because you're their boss. Yeah. Um, and, you know, same thing on a Sunday morning. I say a joke and people start laughing. It's like, oh, they think I'm funny. No, you're just breaking up that awkward silence and and kind of nervously they're they're laughing back. And, and so if we think, in, in that example, if we think that we're funny, that becomes our persona. That's how we view ourselves. And then mm -hmm. we start acting perhaps like the class clown when we really come down. No, that they're just tolerating you. They're, they're humoring you. Now, if we think that we're a good listener, if we think we're, you know, uh, really good at getting gifts, if we think, you know, whatever the case might be, um, that might be true, but it might not be true. Yeah. And for us. All that really matters is our our perception. If we think it's true, we're going to be acting as if it is. Yeah. Like the 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 cliche of um, maybe a first date, the guy takes the girl out and he orders for her. Kind of like, all right, hey, I'm going to be the gentleman. I'm going to be the man. I'm going to order what she wants. And she might be sitting there like, who's this creep? Like, no, I can choose what I want. Uh, and so, you know, there's so much that honestly, there's so much in our life that we haven't tested. We haven't verified if it if there's any truth to it yeah we just held on to it as truth and so you know this is where i just encourage guys to uh, not trust their gut simply like one of the benefits of a long-term relationship 30 years 28 years um we kind of get to really know our spouse 
mm-hmm. we can almost finish their sentences. Yep. One of the downfalls of a long-term relationship is we think we can finish their sentences and we're often wrong. And we don't know the difference to that. And that's that elephant in the room. There's that that conflict in that moment. And we're not talking about, hey, there, there's something off in this interaction. Well, part of that is, is you assumed you thought you knew. And so just a real practical thing is just ask what I think I'm hearing you say yes, yes. is. And then we can get that feedback. If we're right, great. Pat on the back. You got that one right. But if we weren't, then that's a true gift. So we can start to recalibrate what's actually going on here. Well, so this leads up to the, all of this perspective, perception, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, the funhouse mirror, all of this leads up to what I think is the strongest point of your book. It's in chapter 12. And I, I think this is the climax of your research. And, and this chapter is called Stronger Than Reality. And to me, that was that was it right there. Because you 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 discovered something I thought was just mind-blowing. But first I want you to speak uh, to this um Holly, I think this is a Hollywood thing, but this phrase opposites attract. Yeah. In the context of a marriage, what is your opinion on the phrase opposites attract as we move into chapter 12, Stronger Than Reality? Yeah, so it's interesting. There's this romantic um, pers- uh, romantic idea that opposites attract. Like literally right before we started recording, my wife was watching one of her favorite, you know, uh, Nicholas Sparks movies uh, where the bad guy and the church girl opposites, where they attract. Uh, and, and it's a very uh, convenient uh, kind of plot device. Um, but then on the opposite end, we've got birds of a feather flock together. So it's like, all right, so what what is it? Yeah. Uh, is it opposites attract or is it similarities that attract? Um, in my opinion, uh, as well as some of the research, actually, my very first research project back in my undergrad uh, was on this exact topic. And what I found is that kind of one sense it's actually kind of a combination of the two mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that uh, we we tend to find those who are have some similarities, uh, and that tends to be a um, an optional dynamic. But beyond that, and kind of the the, the con- uh, in the context of that chapter, it's not really even the reality of whether or not we are opposite or similar, but it's our perception of similarity. And, and again, that that's that uh, really unique, unexpected finding from the research. Yes. Because uh, so what I did real simply is I asked um, in, in the relationship, I asked the husband a few hundred questions about themselves, and then they answered them about their spouse, and then vice versa. So what I ended up with was a a pretty extensive self description, and then an observer description, an observer report of their spouse, uh, and then I was able to to go ahead and, and look back at those, and. We found that similarity was uh, predictive, correlated with marital satisfaction. All right. If there is some similarity, great. That that helps. Um, but when there was a perception of reality, so not real reality, but when a spouse thought, assumed they perceived that there was a similarity, that ended up being a four time greater predictor of marital satisfaction. And so quite literally, perception is stronger it's greater than reality when we think we're alike wow then that helps us be happy in our relationship that that correlates with an increase four times greater of an increase in marital satisfaction over real similarity 
Well, <clears throat> I'm a li- I'm licensed in a certain um, organization that does marriage and pre-marriage assessments. And the operating assumption is that couples that are most similar have a most the most satisfying relationships. And so when you define, so let's, can you help me unpack this? So let's say uh, I think that my wife and I are similar in this area, but we're not. Can you give me a real-time example of that? Yeah. So, um, so like even the, the assessment you're referring to, they, you know, they use that term positive couple agreement. Uh, yes. And so, you know, there's a, an extensive survey, a number of questions, and they're looking for a husband and wife to answer a, correct, a question in the same direction that we either agree or strongly agree. Uh, and if they do, um, then then that's a plus, which again, there's some truth to that. Yeah. Um, the problem is when we're unpacking that is some of that similarity uh, may just be a perception and not a real similarity. Oh, okay. And so again, when we start to uh, kind of unpack it and tease that through, uh, and so, you know, it's something that might pop up is, um, uh, and actually I mentioned this later on in the book, uh, real life story of uh, a couple get engaged and they get married. And uh, as far as their alcohol consumption, hey, I'm a social drinker and so is my fiance. Right? There's that perception of similarity. We're both social drinkers. Then they get married. They're around each other a lot more. And one of them starts to notice he's drinking a lot more than he did before. Oh. And yeah. then they start discussing that. And he's like, no, I'm not drinking anymore. <laughs> Same thing happens often. Teenagers are dating or young adults are dating. And, oh, yeah, they they love God just like I do. Like, no, I'm going to church because that's where you are. I want to be with you and you're at church. So I want to be at church. Uh, and we kind of um, project onto them what we want to see in them. And so often, and this is really one of those keys for premarital counseling, is uncovering these areas where there's a false perception of similarity. No, that dude doesn't want to go to church. He just wants to be with you. And so after you get married, then it's like, oh, hey, he's changed. And, you know, kind of some of it is, yeah, he was trying to win you over. And so he was trying a little bit harder. But the honest truth was he never was the person that you perceived him to be anyways. And so we've got this um, not just we got married and now he's trying less. Uh, We get married. He's trying less. But he never was that person to begin with to the extent that you perceived him to be. And that makes an even greater chasm between the two. So in those two examples, that sounded negative to me. That, that that would lead to a negative relationship impact. How does that make sense? Because there's, yeah, there's a there's a there's a disparity between what is perspective and what is perception. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like there's that that's negative. And that's when and I mentioned in the book that often when they're coming into my office for the first time, it is because they're stumbling upon the truth. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's something upon the truth that they're not as similar. So for a, a season while they're dating, first date, engagement, early on in the marriage, there's that honeymoon phase. And part of that is we're still living under the delusion. Oh, I got the you. misperception that yep. we're so alike. Uh, and so, you know, one of those therapeutic interventions is addressing this early on. One, so that before you enter into that covenant, you're entering into the covenant with someone that will be till death do us part material. Um, okay. Well, so I had a question. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I had a question on Instagram from a guy. He said, Hey, can you address 
uh, should a Christian marry a non-Christian? And my short answer is no. <laughs> you know, I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Second Corinthians six fourteen. do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So for me, my faith overarches my politics, my view of physical health, my view of relationships, my view of leisure activities, my faith overarches all of that. And so for me, that we can't get that one wrong. You know, I mean, I, you know, I tell people, man, my list for what I wanted a wife was pretty simple. Love Jesus, and I wanted to be attracted to her. But really, that was really all I needed. You know, so so how do you how do you lead couples who discover this disparity between their perspective and their perception? How do you bring that gap down? How do you how do you do that? Yeah, so it's addressing the elephant in the room or the elephant in, in the marriage. Uh, if they're engaged, and, and I'll, I often say this right in the first session, the engagement is one of God's greatest gifts for a couple. Yeah. Because it gets you to start thinking as if you're married, but without the covenant of being married. Yes. And so going through premarital counseling, my goal is not to get everyone to the altar. Like that's between them and the Lord. My goal is to help give them the tools, the resources, the accurate information. I've walked through couples through premarital counseling and they've decided, you know what? We shouldn't get married. And, and, and honestly, that's a win because that's one less divorce that's inevitable down the road. So if they're dating or engaged, uh, again, tremendous. Now, most of my work is with couples who are already married. Yeah. Now you're in a covenant. Yeah. Uh, and so now it is till death do us part. And that's the, that chapter on Fight Club. Uh, it takes at least one of the spouse to be fighting for the marriage. And, and so this is where we work through increasing our communication. We work on increasing getting to know one another. Uh, and we work uh, very specifically targeting those things, identifying what is the perspective and what might be our, perspe- our perceptions, or more specifically, our misperceptions within the relationship so that at least we're on a starting point. Uh, you know, it can go a really long way. Gas tank is empty. All right. Well, he's so lazy. He doesn't care about me. He's so selfish. And if we're jumping right to that uh, assumption, then, well, there's going to be a, a pretty quick domino from there. He's going to get offended. He's going to get upset. Mm-hmm. He's going to tell, you know, it's going to go back and forth. But when we start with one of the, in, in the book, I refer to it as ground rules for fighting. Yeah. You know, the, the Geneva Convention lays out rules of how you can kill your enemy. So like, this is kind of mind boggling for me. Like we have rules for how we can kill the enemy, but yet we stumble through the most important relationship on earth without any kind of guidelines. So being able to start and set down some guidelines. And one of them that I highly recommend is assuming the best in your spouse. All right, gas tank is empty. You have a choice to assume that they were selfish or lazy, didn't care about you, or you could assume the best. Hey, maybe they're busy. Maybe something happened. Maybe they didn't see and whatever the case might be. That really changes the conversation. So when there are those discrepancies, starting by getting accurate information, trying to cut through those misperceptions, and that alone really takes a lot of the, the ammunition out of the arguments because oftentimes those arguments are perpetuated by something happens, someone reacts, and then they're reacting to how you reacted and back and forth. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's like, what are we actually even fighting over? Yeah. But if we're able to get on the same page and, and communicate better, then then we can identify, all right, so I need to return the car with gas. 
all right, that's like that's a simple action step as opposed to kind of blowing it up. Uh, and so, um, you know, a little bit more difficult, you know, you've got a couple who one believes in God and one doesn't. All right. Understanding that will really help if you if you believe that your husband is a man of God or your, your wife, you know, it works both ways. If you believe that they're a man of God, then you're expecting them to go to church most Sundays. Mm-hmm. As a pastor, I'm hoping for every Sunday. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd be happy three out of four, right? Or at least go to church. Go to church. Have a church. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when you realize that your spouse does not have a life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then that changes your expectations. Yes. And now instead of nagging them to go to church, you're faithfully praying and interceding for their salvation. You're setting an example. You're praying. You're interceding for them. Uh, and so that changes, you know, that, that changes the expectations. You know, I, I drive a Jeep and so I expect it to drive fine in the snow. We got some snow today. I'm expecting it to find drive to drive fine in the snow, but I'm not expected to win any races in a quarter mile. Yeah. Um, because I, I know reality of what I have. Um, but if I thought that my car, my Jeep was a sports car, then I'm going to keep getting frustrated when, when it's not performing as I expected it to. And so in our relationship, having that reality, it really starts to help to anchor some things. And then we were able to kind of work from there. Okay. I can hear some single guys out there with their brains spinning and they're thinking this, oh, well, this all makes sense to me. I want to, I want to bridge the gap between perspective and perception. So the best way to do that is just to live with my girlfriend before we get married. So what would you say to that guy? <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> I know I'm laughing too, because I know what the divorce rates are those guys. So, yeah, I mean, a number of different statistics and, and, and research and studies that kind of go and say, no, that, that's not the best way. But again, just starting off with, all right, what does the word of God teach? What, what honors God in our sexual purity, our relationships and in our lives? Uh, and when we're starting with, oh, hey, I know best. If that's our misperception, well, then we're going to go down a certain track. Uh, but when we start with God's word knows best, then we're we're going to honestly just address things. We're going to see things differently. We'll end up with different conclusions. We react out of our perceptions. Yeah. And so if our perception is, well, I know what's best. And, and so often, like, I mean, guys, we, we often know what we want. And so then we work reality facts and situations to get us to what we want at the end of the day. But if we stop and say, no, God's word is the final authority. Yep. And this is why we encourage men, be in God's word, be in church, yep. be in relationships in small groups, have an accountability partner, have a mentor. And so it can be that reality testing against simply what we want and then matching things to line up with that. So, so and I agree with you hundred percent. And I, I, if I could just tell these younger guys, anything, you know, God word speaks very strongly against premarital sex. And if you're living together, you're having sex. So don't tell me otherwise, uh, you know, and so it, 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 you, if you decide to disobey God's word, then you become that partner who doesn't know Jesus on the level that maybe you should have, or you should. And so, yeah. so let's do this. So when I hear you talk about uh, uh, similarity, I'm hearing similarity, not in hair color, not in height, not in skin pigment, not in demographic. I'm hearing similarity in value. 
when you say similarity, what, how do you define similarity and what are the the four or five critical categories where couples must be similar? Yeah. And so, yeah, we can uh, enjoy different movies, enjoy uh, kind of different things. Um, But that, that similarity really, if we're going to really boil it down to uh, it's just defining things the same. Uh, And so what is uh, acceptable uh, holiday celebration? What's acceptable for uh, for PDA? What's acceptable for relationship with God? It, it's really that similarity oh. is defining things oh. similar. That's good. Wow! And, like I remember remember going through um, that premarital assessment with a couple, and we got to you know I enjoy um, uh, public displays of affection, or however it's phrased for that that question, and both of them rated that really low. Um, and I'm thinking like, this is deficient. Like this is a problem. Then I'm like, oh no, that's that's my bias. I wanted a girlfriend, wanted a fiance, wanted a wife that would value holding hands, being close, physical touch. Like that's something that I wanted in a spouse. Here's a couple that no, they when they sit on a couch, they want to be comfortable. Oh. Like, I don't remember the last time I sat on a couch and was comfortable because I sat on the couch. My wife leans on me like that's what I want. That's what she wants, Yeah, which is very different than, hey, give me my space. Let me lean back so that I can get comfy. If we define those things, you know, those those little things, if we if we see things similar, um, because quite honestly, couples that both do not believe in God, uh, that will increase marital satisfaction over Um, having a different relationship with God. And so, again, not that I'm recommending not believing in God, but if we have that in common, that similarity. Now, also those who do believe in God, those who have a a faith, uh, there's an increase. So we can put those two together, that the happiest couples, those who have the greatest level of marital satisfaction, are those who agree and believe in God. That's really that sweet spot. Yeah, no, that's really good because I'm about dealing truth. And the truth is, if you have two atheists together, they have a they have more satisfaction with their faith or lack of faith than the born-again Christian man who married an atheist woman. And yeah. so it's it's this similar thing. So here's the here's the big question that that uh, guys are asking. I ha- I've had at least two guys in the last five years call me to and tell me that they were afraid of their wife. Because their kids left the home and they don't know who that person is living with them anymore. So these couples, and you talked about your parents getting divorced after 28 years. So these these couples, as they move through the stress bubble of life, what would you tell them is critical to have a thriving, satisfying relationship when the kids leave the home? What do they need to do in that stress bubble to ensure E-N-S-U-R-E, that their marriage will be a a thriving one. Yeah, what I recommend is for couples to be ambitiously curious about your spouse. Like consider them the greatest scavenger hunt that, I mean, even after 28 years of nearly 28 years of marriage, I'm still learning things about my wife. Absolutely. And we're we're looking for things to get to know, to to get to know them better. Because here's a few things. One, there's always more that we don't know, always more that we can grow and understand, but they're also growing and changing. You know, my wife has gone back to, to college and, and so she, now she's learning things, it's growing and stretching her. She's not the same person today that she was a semester ago. Now that our life is back to measuring things in semesters, 
And so I need to get to know who she is, not from our first date, not from our wedding night, not from our 10th year anniversary when we rededicated our vows. I need to find out who she is today. And if we truly engage in doing that, and it's a two-way street, we need for them to get to know us. And for them to get to know us, we need to get to know ourselves. And so as we're in God's word, as we're in relationships, we've got those mentors, we're, we're doing all these things to better understand ourselves so that we can communicate, so that we're in a relationship where we know one another. We know ourselves, we know them, they know us, they know themselves. And that really, it's kind of that secret sauce to when the kids are out of the house, uh, when there's retirement. I mean, I, I've talked to spouses, like they're fearful of their husband or yes. re- retiring because now like, now I'm going to have to be with them all day long. Um, but if we're getting to know them and we're really intentional, intentional about getting to know them, it really changes things. Yeah, that is so good. We just had a guy named Bill Farrell on our podcast. He wrote a book called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. And, and he talked about being curious. Like you always need to be curious, asking questions, discovering new angles, you know, just, uh, you know, how your wife looks at things. And I just think that's critical, man, because if a guy does it right in the bubble, the stress bubble, and is curious about his wife and engaged in the marriage, on the other side, he will reap the rewards. If not, he will reap the destruction. Absolutely. So, man, that's so good, man. So is there anything else you want to add? What about, what about a couple? Let me ask one last question. What about the couple who, uh, like your parents, got on the other side of the stress bubble and realized, wow, we lost each other during the child raising years. How do you help that couple reconnect and become similar again? Yeah. So like in that very specifically, my uh, my dad, uh, I would say, didn't realize how far they had drifted apart. Um, and so he just expected and I'm. I think I can speak for him because we've talked a lot about this, but he just expected, all right, hey, now that the kids are gone, we're getting to spend time. I remember uh, right around that time, they uh, they booked a trip to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where my wife and I went on our honeymoon. And, you know, my dad's thinking, hey, I can, re- I can recapture, I can experience what my son and his bride experienced. And now I get a chance to do that with my wife. Um, but my mom had no desire to spend time with this guy in a romantic environment because that's not where she was at. Mm. And so being honest about it, all right, going on a romantic trip might not be where you're at getting to know each other. Maybe going to, my mom enjoys sports to some extent. And so going to a Red Sox game would, would have been great. Like, all right, this is something that they can both do. It's not so personal. It's not so romantic. It's not so deep. Um, really, it's beginning to to date in court all over again. Yeah, yeah. Getting to know who they are because for them, man, who they knew is a 20, 30 year old version of, of one another. Absolutely. Well, you know, we had a guy on the podcast now he's passed away. He's with Jesus now, Reggie Campbell. And he said something that was deeply impacting to me as a lot of the things that you're saying today are, he said, learn to love what your wife loves. I thought, Oh, Mm -hmm. that explains why we go and do tropical vacations. I'd rather go hunt something and shoot it. You know, (laughs) and that's usually a cold weather thing, but my wife loves the tropical. And so I've fallen in love with that. And so, and that, that common thing or become a fitness buff. If your wife is a fitness buff or, or, you know, go, you know, go for hikes. If your wife's wife likes to hike or, you know, find something that you guys can do yeah. to connect that are similar. Right. So, man, this is so powerful, Jason. I just, I love your book. 
I've, I've, I've only, I don't think I've ever had somebody come on twice for the same book. I just really love your book. Where can these guys get it? Yeah. Uh, really any books or wherever you buy your books, probably the easiest place is just go right on Amazon. Yeah. Um, and just search the elephant in the marriage. Um, or if you can, uh, if you can remember my name, Jason Karampatsos, K-A-R-A-M-P-A-T-S-O-S, probably easier, The Elephant in the Marriage. Go ahead and search that. I'm excited now. It's available in hardcover. Um, same content, but uh, if you prefer a soft cover, paperback or, or hardcover, uh, great way. I've got all my contact information right there in the back of the book. You can go to my website, june3rd.com, J-U-N-E, the number three, R-D.com. Um, for, for access to the book. I've got another one that I'm working on um, that I'm, I'm hoping it will come out later on this year. And so uh, get in touch with me and I can keep you posted on that. So does this book come out? Is it on Audible yet? It is not. Actually, I did uh, recorded the entire book. I wasn't pleased with how it came out. Okay. So then I, I scrapped it all together and decided I need to focus on the next book. And then I think when I'm recording the audiobook for the next one, I'll go back and do this one. Okay, perfect. Well, man, I appreciate you. And uh, I'm just excited. If, if you guys want you to come out and speak about this, they can uh, get to your website and uh, reach it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Honored to, to come out there. All right. Well, hey, man, thanks so much. Have a great week, man. God bless you, brother. Hey, God bless you as well. All right, man. Guys, our man laws are supplied by you, our heroes, and we use yours. We want to send you some swag. Just say thank you. Uh, these man laws are all a part of my brand new book, Man Laws. 100 Ways to Get Your Man Card Revoked and Rules to Live By, which you can get free on our website right now at meninarena.org. So this week's man law is man law number nine, and it is this. Offer your firm, neither soft nor overpowering handshake when you meet a man. The life rule here is first impressions do matter. Man, make sure you head on over to our website at manlarena.org. Grab your free copy of Man Laws. Uh, you are going to love this book, guys. And while you're there, make sure you click the Join Our Program button. Get more involved in this ministry. Until next time, feel the wet sound on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.